morning, and happy Mother's Day once again. I do want to elaborate on something you've heard alluded to a couple of times already in this service, namely that our Savior Jesus radically redefined family and thereby radically redefined motherhood, actually. Uh, he, you may remember, was allocating his time and energy in such a way that people were concerned that he was not giving his nuclear biological family of origin enough of his energy. And remember how he responded? He said, who are my mother and brothers? These who do my will, these are my mother and brothers. Right? And in saying that, he fundamentally redefined. He changes the family boundary markers for Christians such that our primary family, our first family, is actually no longer our biological nuclear families like it is for our neighbors, our first and realist family is actually now our, our family of faith. And so as such, we do, we do honor this morning the women in our congregation who are mothers in the traditional sense. Thank God for all of you. Uh, but we also honor this morning the many women in our congregation who have yet to have kids or who will never have kids in the traditional sense yet who have shown themselves to be mothers in our midst every bit as much through their mentoring and teaching and nurturing other members of our church family. Some of them are serving downstairs right now. Some of them will serve at the youth group tonight. Uh, others are discipling adult women in the church. Thank you to our spiritual mothers as well. We honor you. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. On major issues, but even on trivial issues, people state their beliefs so definitively these days. Like turn on just about any sports talk show today, though not today, unless mom really wants to do that. Uh, have some decency. But tomorrow, maybe, you'll see commentators debating with what seems to be life or death conviction. I was reflecting on that phenomenon the other day. I thought, okay, what if I was an alien from somewhere else who couldn't understand English, but somehow by satellite I stumbled upon the broadcast of an ESPN talk show? What would I guess or imagine that those people were debating so vigorously? And I think that if I couldn't understand the words, but I just watched these people's blood vessels bulging on their necks and their arms flailing and their fingers pointing at each other, my alien self would probably conclude, okay, wow, these humans here must be arguing about the most, very most important of all issues on planet Earth, right? As it turns out, they're just discussing whether the Bears should have taken a receiver or a lineman in the draft. All that, right? Even though we know how it goes probably before the cameras start rolling, right? One of them says to the other, hey, which side of this debate do you want to take? All right, I, I could go either way, you know. They don't really have deep convictions about these issues, right? It's entertainment. They just yell and call each other names until they've convinced themselves that they do have deep convictions about these issues. The operative principle of the sports talk show, and I use that as an example, but it could be expanded to many aspects of our lives these days, seems to be something like, if I shout my opinion loudly enough, 
it transforms from an opinion into a fact. And I'm poking fun, but let's face it, uh, we're often guilty of the same thing. I am. Yes, with takes about sports, but also political opinions, current events. Anybody else? Like, I didn't even have an opinion on this 20 minutes ago, so why am I pounding my fist on the table now? And it's silly, but in all honesty, I've, I've wished sometimes that I could bottle some of that and put it to use in my relationship with God. Like, here's the situation uh, when I need it. When these whispers start getting louder in my head, it's a joke that you call yourself a Christian. Any God would be disgusted with you. You're a fraud. Those kind of whispers. In those moments, I wish I could just turn on argue mode, right, and, and passionately fight back. No voice, you're the fraud, right? I belong to God. I won't listen to any voice that says differently. But all too often, I can't pull it off. I can't bring myself to flip that switch because I have this nagging concern, right? Maybe that voice is right. So, question for today. How important is it that I personally experience a subjective sense of confidence in my relationship with God? How important is that? 1 John speaks to that question. If you turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, if you haven't already. There are Bibles in the chair in front of you. You can use a Bible app. You'll want to follow along with us. You might remember that we chose last week to start with the end of this letter called 1 John. We permitted ourselves to spoil the punchline of 1 John, so to speak, by peeking ahead at John's statement of purpose. Namely, that he has written this letter so that his readers will know that they have the eternal life that's found in Christ. It's chapter 5, verse thing, verse 13. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John's like, I don't just want you to have eternal life. I want you to walk around each day knowing that you have it, assured that you have it. We began there last week so that the, that overarching purpose would already be filed away in our minds as we flip back to the beginning of the letter today and in the weeks to come. And by the way, that overarching purpose does fit well with the series that we've been engaged in this last few months. We've entitled, You Are Here. We're trying to get a sense, both individually and as a congregation, of where exactly we stand before God. First John is well suited to help us with that question. So the thing about First John is John's writing style, his brain, doesn't seem to work in the way that the Apostle Paul's does, for example. If the Apostle Paul's writing, uh, his letters have such a logical flow, right? A is true, therefore B is true, which results in C, etc. But that's not how John writes this letter, as you know if you've read it before. Uh, he hits a few main themes over and over and over again, like in cycles, like point A, then B, then back to A, then C, then B, then C again, then a reiteration of the second half of B. You know, it, that's how John writes it. Um, so when you've read the whole letter, it's clear that he's hit a handful of main themes over and over again. And you can definitively piece together all he said on these themes and forms a coherent whole. But what I'm saying is the organization makes it a challenge to preach sequentially, which is why we've opted for a more thematic approach 
for these next few weeks. So today we're going to look at a couple passages that address the relationship between the subjective and the objective as they relate to our assurance of eternal destiny. Again, the question today is how important is it that I personally experience a subjective sense of confidence in my relationship with God? And then maybe two sub-questions can put a sharp point on what's at stake here. Like, if I'm not personally, experientially confident in my relationship with God, does that mean necessarily that my future is actually in jeopardy? And on the flip side of that coin, uh, if, if I've always been 100,000% sure that I'm headed to heaven, does that mean I'm headed to heaven? It's a little of what we'll be exploring today. Three points about the objective, the subjective, and the ultimate. The objective, the subjective, and the ultimate. First, subjective confidence is worthless if not placed in something objectively true. Subjective confidence is worthless if not placed in something objectively true. Uh, many Christians and non-Christians actually agree on this, by the way. As evidenced when the, uh, the Twin Towers were hit on 9-11, right? It became clear in the days that followed that many of the terrorists involved sincerely believed at the bottom of their hearts that their actions were earning them the eternal favor of their God, complete with guaranteed rewards in the afterlife for their sacrifice. Yet, Christians and many non-Christians alike seemed to agree. Yeah, no, right? It, it, it doesn't matter how sincerely someone believes the lie that they will be awarded virgins in heaven for committing a terrorist act, their sincerity doesn't make the lie any more true. But here's the thing. Many think that Christianity is just another iteration of that same lie. If you've ever seen the movie The Invention of Lying, anybody seen it? Uh, it illustrates this well. This movie tells the story of a world in which everyone can only tell the truth until this one person figures out that he can lie. He uses that ability to his advantage in several ways. Everybody assumes he's telling the truth because that's all anyone's ever done in that world. But in a particularly notable scene with his mother on her deathbed, he thinks to himself, wait a minute. And he makes up this lie that after death, there's this wonderful afterlife waiting for you. Nobody's ever heard that before on his world. So the liar's mom is deeply comforted in her final moments by his lie. The doctors are amazed in this liar's world-altering new teaching about a good place governed by a man in the sky. It spreads like wildfire. That's what plenty of people imagine about Christianity. Right? And maybe you're in that camp yourself. You say, well, even though it's not likely that there's much objective truth behind Christianity. It is a useful set of ideas people came up with along the way to cope, to make meaning out of what would otherwise be super depressing if we had to face the truth. What's interesting here in 1 John is how definitively John wants to close the door on the possibility that someone would just use Christianity as merely a pleasant subjective comfort. Like actually, John, we're going to see in just a moment, he comes out the gate ready to stake it all on the fact that what he's about to tell us is objectively real. 
that the events he's talking about actually happened in time and space. Look at, look at it with me. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's trace what, what John is claiming here. So he starts out with some suspense. It's like the masked singer, if you've been watching that. There's something behind the mask. John's like, I'm going to call it what to uh, pique your interest in my pulling off the mask. But there's something that John's talking about, something unknown that was from the beginning. Now, of course, if you know that John is Jewish, you say, okay, I know where he's going. The one who's from the beginning is God. Genesis 1-1, right? First verse of the Bible. But it's worth noting that the Jewish scriptures also hint at a promised one who, like God, was also from the beginning. Take a peek. Habakkuk 1-12, we expect, are you not from eternity? Lord my God, my Holy One, you will not die. We know that's what we expect, that the Lord is from eternity. But then in Micah 5, 2, the exact same language in Hebrew, same phrase. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. This is the Messiah, the ruler that's coming. His origin is from antiquity. Same word as from eternity, from ancient times. So John and his fellow Jewish people had been asking each other for centuries since the writing of Micah wait a minute, what is this right here, right? Who besides God could possibly be from the beginning? And now in the first verses of 1 John, John says, hey, I found the answer. It was revealed, a revealed answer, verse 2. Right? And it wasn't just revealed in some kind of poem or riddle. It was revealed in such a verifiably real way that this one that was from the beginning transcendent, ultimate, can be heard, seen, touched. Take a look at all those reiterations of that. Heard, seen, observed, touched, seen, seen, heard. He wants to make sure it gets through that this mysterious what that John began by talking about isn't just a feeling. It isn't just an imagination. It's not a story. It's not a mere hope. He's claiming that the unseen has become seen. In such a way that there are eyewitnesses who have discovered that, spoiler alert, under the mask was Jesus Christ. See verse 2 there? What else was with the Father, right? What else could have been observed and touched with hands? Some have claimed that this is talking about the message about Jesus, but it can't just be the message about Jesus because the message wasn't with the Father, can't be touched with hands. He's speaking about Jesus himself. And it's appropriate for John to call Jesus the word of life. Or then in, uh, right after that, just the life. Because he heard Jesus use that name for himself while on earth. 
by the way, if, you, if you've never reflected on the implications of Jesus speaking of himself that way, uh, that's a uniqueness for him with respect to all the other major religious figures in world history. While Buddha, Muhammad, every other religious leader said things like, I have pointed you to the truth. Right? They said things like, I've shown you where to find life. Right? They've said things like, now follow the way that I have prescribed. Say all those things. Jesus came along and said, no, 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 I am the way. I am the truth. I, I am the life. What you need is me. John was there when Jesus said that. John 14, 6, he recorded it. John walked closely with Jesus for three years, and now, sometime after Jesus' death and resurrection, John is ready to say, the fact of the visible, audible, tangible Christ, who not only came in the flesh, but rose from the dead in such a way that we talked to him, we ate with him, we touched him. Not only is what I'm telling you about him factually true, which it is, but it's critical from the outset of my letter that you know that it's factually true. In other words, by foregrounding the concrete reality of Jesus in the very first verses of this letter, part of what John's saying is this, I'm not interested in comforting you with a white lie to make you feel good and help you get through this miserable existence. If this wasn't real, I wouldn't waste your time. Summary, as we're journeying along this road of life, John's warning us about a ditch that exists over here. Uh, the ditch that says, well, all we have is this objective. There are no objective truth claims to be made about Jesus or about faith, because after all, all any of us really have to go on is personal experience, subjective opinion. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for somebody else, that's fine too. Right? All we have is a subjective. John says, Stays at, stay out of that ditch. If the eternal didn't actually enter into time, if the invisible didn't actually become visible, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead such that we could see and hear and touch him, then it's a fairy tale. Don't bother with it. Don't embrace Christianity because it comforts you or because it makes your life more tolerable. Embrace it only if it's real. Friends, I, I fear that too many Christians would sign off on this statement. Happily, say, well, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, at least our Christian beliefs motivated us to be good people, right? Is that how you see it? For what it's worth, that's not how the first generation of Christians talked about it at all. Right? What does the Apostle Paul say? If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, we Christians are the most pathetic humans ever to live paraphrase. In the end, subjective confidence is worthless if it's not placed in something objectively true. But, but what if there's another ditch on this side, over here? Uh, a ditch that assigns no importance to subjective personal experience and acts as though objective facts are all that matters, as if as long as I can answer correctly about Jesus on a multiple choice test and affirm the correct facts about him, I'm good. That's where we're going next. Point two, uh, 
the personal experience of that objective truth that we talked about here actually does matter, according to John. The subjective personal experience of that objective truth does matter. Uh, even on a surface reading here of these first four verses of the letter, it's obvious that John is not interested in writing a detached academic essay outlining correct doctrine. Yes, he's making objective truth claims, but he's making them out of a personal experience of that truth. Let's look at it. John, of course, is part of the we, who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry and miracles and death and resurrection. Look at all the times he uses we or us or our. Look at me now, look with me now at some ways in which this is extremely personal for him, though. For one thing, he's found life in Jesus. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and that was revealed to us. John's like, hey, the life that we've all been looking for, I, f I found it. It's personal to him. Second, Jesus gave him relationships that he wouldn't have otherwise had. Look at verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, readers, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship being this deep connection, this intimacy together and and, and uh, you can trace backwards what he's saying here that John and the other eyewitnesses they've already entered into fellowship with the father and the son right and what they're saying is that we readers as we read if we accept their testimony about who Jesus is we enter into fellowship with them the first apostles the eyewitnesses John and the others and by doing so we are connected to the Father and the Son that they were connected to and that they shared with us in the scriptures. In light of that, John is the opposite of detached, right? Just writing this brings him joy. And in fact, it's not a stretch to say that if he didn't write this, he feels he'd be short-circuiting his joy. Take a look at verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Implication, if we didn't write this, our joy would be incomplete. And you know exactly what he means by that. If you've ever seen an incredible theater performance or work of art or sunset or double rainbow, right? Noah Swift's recital yesterday. A bunch of us were over there. Uh, incredible, right? When you see something like that, when you encounter somebody who has mastered a craft and is making something that's so, uh, comes so close to touching the transcendent, right? I don't know if several of you I know felt the same way. You have to tell somebody about it. You have to talk about it afterwards. How can you not talk to somebody about it? It, it? The joy would be bottled up inside of you. It would be almost painful not to talk about what you've seen and heard. Right? If you witness something like that, it's not just the joy is left unexpressed, it's left incomplete. So listen, if you're here today, not entirely on your own volition, like maybe mom or wife said, it really means a lot to me on Mother's Day. Or somebody sent you the link to this sermon and you and told you to watch it. As you're listening, maybe you're a little annoyed that we're telling you you're never going to find the life you're looking for apart from Jesus. I hope you hear this morning that we're not, we're not coming at this like, hey, we here possess the truth and we pity those fools who haven't figured it out yet. It's not it. No, here at Northside, we see it like this. We see it that we're a bunch of beggars who searched for bread on empty stomachs for years before we found it. 
But now that we have found the bread, we kind of feel like we'd be colossal jerks if we kept that bread to ourselves. And that's John here in, in these words, right? He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm writing to you because I was with him. The eternal God who had no beginning, he came and I literally got to see and hear and touch him. It was amazing. How could I not write to you about that? And so that person who sent you this link or who dragged you out here today, they're just a beggar trying to help another beggar find bread. We're not merely trying to convince you to change your multiple choice answers about Jesus. We're trying to invite you into the life-altering personal encounter that we've had with him. Okay, so the two ditches have been laid out here uh, in, this in this text. Ditch one, all we have to go on is subjective, so your guess is as good as mine about what's true about Jesus. Ditch two, all that matters is if we can correctly identify the objective truths about Jesus. Personal experience is unimportant. Both are off. The path we've called to walk is actually somewhere in the middle. With experience not being everything, but also not being nothing. The subjective, in other words, isn't ultimate, but it's also not unimportant. With that groundwork laid, I want to take us to one more passage in 1 John. In hopes of naming, what's What's the heart of the objective truth that we're meant to subjectively experience? What's, like, what's the core of it? Yes, Jesus, of course, but what exactly about Jesus? And I want to make the case that it's the sacrifice of Jesus that is our ultimate hope. The sacrifice of Jesus is our ultimate hope. Uh, we're going to read those first two verses of chapter 2 in just a moment. But if we're, if we're looking to stake our hopes on something objective that won't waver when our subjective experience does waver, this is it, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Chapter 2, I'm going to start halfway through verse 1, actually. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What's going on here? Let's move through this with some quick hits. First, if anyone does sin, that makes it sound like someone might not sin. Until we recall that just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, John said, if you claim you don't sin, you're a liar. So that means that this if here must not be hypothetical. right? It's, it's a certain if. We all sin. The question is, when we do, what then? If we sin, we have an advocate with God the Father, John tells us. Why do I need an advocate? Well, that's, it's a courtroom situation. And it's not a good outlook, actually, for any of us in the defendant's chair. We are undisputably guilty of the most heinous sort of betrayal. Heinous because the one betrayed happens to be the only being in the universe with zero fault of his own. Not to mention that he's the one who created us and never did anything but perfectly love us. Put those factors together and we're facing an uphill battle with... God the judge, to say the least. Our only hope is if an advocate might come along and plead our case. Now, about this judge for a moment. You say, oh, that's just how I pictured God. A grouchy judge with a stern face waiting to pour out his wrath on me for the times I messed up just because he's in a bad mood. Like, did anybody see the study that was released this week about Louisiana judges? Anybody see that? Um, 
the study showed that judges in the state of Louisiana over the last few years, they have handed out more severe sentences to juvenile offenders on weeks after the LSU football team loses. A statistically significant difference in, a, in the length of sentence for the same crime. The theory of the researchers is that they're grumpy about their treasured team losing, so they take it out on these kids at sentencing. No joke. But, but that's actually similar to how many cultures in history have depicted their gods, right? Moody, hope you catch them on a good day, right? Prone to tantrums, needing to be bribed all the time and pacified. So when we read in verse 2 that we need an advocate, uh, that Jesus, our advocates, are atoning sacrifice, right? We need someone to atone and make a sacrifice for our sins to, theoretically, to pacify the wrath of a god who's a judge, uh, we have to be careful not to read it through the lens of the human judges, flawed human judges that we know, or of other religions in world history that have seen God as this, uh, you know, moody, tantrum-having being. As if, as if God was like, ugh, I wanted to smite you. You're lucky Jesus died in your place, right? I'll get you next time, though. Is that how our God is? No, no, no. Friends, Jesus coming to earth to be our atoning sacrifice, that was God's idea. He initiated it. Uh, the theologians call it the pactum salutis. It's something like this. The father saying to the son, son, I, I don't want any of these people to perish, these people that we made and that we love. Right? I love them dearly, but, but I'd be a wicked judge if I just looked the other way at their crimes. So I'm sending you to take the punishment they deserve to offer yourself up as a willing sacrifice to turn away my wrath so that I can do what I really want to do as the Father, which is to save them. See? Like, like yes, Jesus turns away the Father's wrath. He is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation in some translations, which does involve the turning away of wrath. But he's not convincing the Father to begrudgingly love us. He's delighting the Father by fulfilling the Father's desire that the Father already had, to be at one with us again. That's what the word atone means, to be at one once again. And Jesus doesn't just do that for our sins, John says. He's the atoning sacrifice for all people without exception. That means that not only does your hope and my hope for escaping God's wrath ride on a Middle Eastern Jew who died and rose again in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, it also means that that same Jesus is the only hope for escaping God's wrath for the Southeast Asian rice farmer, for the Canadian fisherman, for the Ghanaian mom, for the Polish high school student. He's the atoning sacrifice, the one atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And he does his work of advocacy, something like this. He's seated right now at the hand, right hand of God the Father in heaven. Uh, that's where he went after he died and rose again and then ascended. And from that seat, in the presence of the Father, he's saying, I already love that person. I already, I already love that person, Marla. Yes, she deserved your wrath for her betrayal of you, but because I knew you cherished her and wanted to be reconciled to her, I willingly took Marla's place and experienced your wrath myself on that cross, remember? And Marla has since put her faith in you to forgive her sins on the basis of my shed blood. So now, Father, Jesus says, 
despite the accuser who tells you to condemn her. It would actually be unjust of you to punish a second time her sins, which you already punished once at the cross. I've purchased her place in our forever family. That's, that's the work that our advocate does on our behalf. He's doing it for you today and for me. So question, honest, earnest question. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, do you have a plan for how you're going to stand before God without that advocate? Once by faith he becomes your advocate, God's wrath has been averted from you and has been replaced by God's favor. But until he becomes your advocate, specifically your advocate, God's wrath continues to hang over your head and awaits you upon death. That may sound exclusive, but it's actually radically inclusive. Because no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night, literally last night, you can take him on as your advocate this very morning. There's no make yourself presentable and earn his trust. It's just, Jesus, I've got no hope if you don't plead my case. I believe you died to take my punishment on yourself, and I want to belong to you. That's it. Turning from your former life in which you were on the throne, acknowledging his rightful place on that throne, you'll be saved. So our big idea today is this. Let's seek to personally experience the objective atoning sacrifice of Christ. Let's seek to personally experience the objective atoning sacrifice of Christ. In the end, personal experience isn't nothing. It's also not the ultimate ground or basis of our confidence before God. So based on what we've seen here today, we can put it in terms of the question that we asked at the outset, right? How important is it that I personally experience a subjective sense of confidence in my relationship with God? And now we can maybe say, well, that subjective sense of confidence is worth seeking after, but is not ultimate. It's worth seeking after, but is not ultimate. And sub-question one, if I'm not personally, experientially confident in my relationship with God, does that mean my future is actually in jeopardy? And now we would say, not necessarily, right? Those could be lies that are causing doubts. But on the flip side, if I've always been 100,000% sure I'm headed to heaven, does that mean I'm headed to heaven? Again, not necessarily. The 9-11 hijackers were sure that they were headed to heaven. You see, in, in the end, it would be unwise for any of us to go home assured today entirely on the basis of a subjective feeling of confidence that's abstracted from anything objective. Right? And on the flip side, it would be just as unwise for any of us to go home today feeling shaky because we lack a subjective feeling of abstract confidence in our hearts. Right? Believing friend... Go home assured today, solidly assured today, please. But go home assured because of the blood. Because of the blood that was shed for you, not because of your subjective inner sense of certainty. Over the next three Sundays, we're going to see these three tests in 1 John. Those tests can start to get us weak in the knees, right? Asking questions like, do I measure up to the standard here? But should those feelings of self-doubt start to creep in over the coming weeks, let's commit together to remember what we saw today. 
that the call of 1 John isn't to work yourself up like a sports commentator, as if maybe if I say it loud enough, I'll convince myself to be certain that I'm saved, right? If that's what it was, we'd just be putting our faith in our faith. Our faith needs a much more solid object than that, namely Christ. I want to leave you with an illustration that might be the single most helpful illustration I've ever heard in my whole life. I've shared it with several of you privately, haven't shared it from up here before. Not original to me, it's D.A. Carson. So <clears throat> imagine, imagine the scene the night of that first Passover, the one back in Egypt. The night when the angel was going to come and put to death the firstborn in each home in Egypt. Two neighbors are out in front of their homes talking to each other that night. And person A says, well, hey, how are you feeling about tonight? It's finally here. The night has come. Person B says, well, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. It's stressful. Person A says, what do you mean it's, you're nervous and it's stressful? Didn't you put the blood over your doorpost? God promised us if you put the blood over the doorpost that the angel of death would pass over your home and no one would die in your home. Person B said, yeah, I know, I, I did it all. I did it all according to instruction. I put the blood over the doorpost, but still, I mean, the angel of death, it's terrifying. Right? So two people, one of them sleeps easy that night. 100,000% certain that he and his family are going to be saved. The other, tossing and turning all night, can't sleep, feeling nervous about it. Which of those two homes lost their firstborn that night? Of course, the answer is neither, right? Neither of those homes lost their firstborn that night. Because the salvation offered by God was never on the basis of the quality of their faith, but rather on the object of their faith. God does not offer us, I'll say it again, salvation based on the quality of our faith, but rather on the basis of the object on their faith, of their faith. They put the blood on the doorpost, and that was enough. Shaky, strong. It's the blood that saves. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning and to have that burden lifted off of you. You're shaky. You're unsure. You're a wreck because of what you've done and the sin that you keep falling into. Have you pleaded the blood of the lamb by placing it over the doorposts of your heart, so to speak? Have you put your trust in his atoning sacrifice? If you have, it's enough. It's enough. Let's spend a full 30 seconds or a minute in silent reflection on this. Just doing whatever work you need to do with God, and then I'll close this in prayer.
Lord, we thank you that we can go home from this place today confident in where we stand before you. Not on the basis of how saved we feel, but rather on the basis of the blood that was shed on our behalf. Thank you that on days when we really feel saved and on days that we don't really feel saved, that if we have trusted in your blood, that we are just as saved on both of those days. That our status before you doesn't rise or fall with how sure or unsure we feel at a given moment, but our status was written in stone for all of eternity on that day when your son died for us and then when he rose three days later from the dead. Um, For those of us who put our faith in you, help us to claim that confidence. Help us to live in it. Help us to experience it more deeply this year than we've ever experienced it before. Help us to take captive the lies of our enemy as he tries to wiggle his way into our minds and hearts and introduce doubt and self-loathing. Help us to be self-forgetful and forget about our sins, just as you have forgotten about those sins and help us to be able to be confident before you because of the blood that washed us clean. And for the person here who may not have come to saving faith in you yet, we pray that you would be drawing them uh, in such a way that they can't avoid it, that, that, that they can just feel this morning you tugging at their heart and as much as they try to resist, the pull just gets stronger and stronger. Help them to experience what many of us in this room have experienced, the sweetness of surrender to you. We finally give ourselves over to you and we open up our hands and, 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 and extend them to you. The release of trying to measure up to some ambiguous standard being removed from us, that burden being lifted from our backs and being able to go to bed confident at night that we have an eternity waiting for us that is going to be glorious, incredible. I pray that somebody here would even experience that today for the first time, that they'd get that kind of sleep tonight, knowing that because they put their faith in you, that they have the sweetest of eternities awaiting them with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.